Let us pray. Um, obviously, tomorrow is a significant day in the nation's history, so I thought it would be appropriate for us to begin with a, a prayer today, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, but a prayer for the President of the United States and all in civil authority. So let us pray. O Lord, our Governor, whose glory is in all the world, we commend this nation to thy merciful care, that being guided by thy providence, we may dwell secure in thy peace. Grant to the President of the United States and to the President-elect and to all in authority wisdom and strength to know and to do thy will. Fill them with the love of truth and righteousness and make them ever mindful of their calling to serve this people in thy fear. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are today in Acts chapter 8. We are going to begin today at verse 9, and we're going to read through verse 25. And if we have time, we'll move on uh, through the rest of the chapter, which is also a very significant story, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But today, we have before us a very bizarre story, I think is probably the best way to describe it, this odd case of Simon Magus, or Simon the Great. So Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news in the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to them, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Uh, one commentator has described uh, Acts chapter 8 as the ever-widening stream. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good title, because what we're beginning to see here is the influence of the church and the Christian witness expanding. You'll recall in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus had said, to his disciples, that once the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would be his witnesses. 
first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. So it was a threefold um, prophecy. They would be as witnesses first in Jerusalem, where they were at the time, and then beyond that, into Jerusalem, but also into Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. Well, here we see the second stage of that prophecy being fulfilled. We see one of the early deacons of the church, this man by the name of Philip, going into Samaria. If you take a look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we read this. Now those who were scattered, scattered is the result of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that erupted on the church in those early days in Jerusalem. As a result of that scattering, many went out preaching the word. And Philip, we're told, went down to the city of Samaria. Now, let me just say something. It says Philip went down to Samaria. If you look at a map, one of the first things that you'll notice is that Samaria is not down. It's up. Samaria is north of Jerusalem. So why does Luke say that he went down? Well, you know because you've been in my class all these years. But the obvious answer is he went down because you always went down from Jerusalem. And you always went up to Jerusalem. It didn't matter where you were coming from north, south, east, or west. Jerusalem was, of course, built on a hill, but that wasn't why people went up to Jerusalem. They went up to Jerusalem because of its symbolic significance. For Jews, it was the center of the world. And so when you were a pilgrim, you always spoke of going up to Jerusalem and going down from Jerusalem, no matter what point of the compass you were traveling to. So in this particular instance, we're told that he went to Samaria. So we begin to see the mission expanding. And Philip went there, and he preached in Samaria. And we said last week that was a very courageous thing for him to do because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And the Samaritans hated the Jews just as well. And we said this was an ancient, ancient story. Uh, this went back, way back, uh, 700 years or so, to the destruction of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, by the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, what they had done is they had conquered the northern kingdom and they had deported a large number of the people. Um, the ten lost tribes, that were those, the ten lost tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they deported the vast population, the vast majority of the population, to Assyria. But they did leave some people behind. And it was those people who were left behind who then intermarried with the new people that were supplanted in their place. And they intermarried and they became at least in the eyes of the people in Judah, uh, in the kingdom that was still remaining, the two tribes to the south, they were regarded really as half-breeds, as collaborators, as people who had sold out. And to make matters worse, the Samaritans, of course, had managed to erect another temple, which was strictly forbidden by the Scriptures. There was only to be one temple. Again, it was to be located in Jerusalem, and here they were erecting a new temple. And when the Jews to the south called them on that, they justified their action by rejecting the whole of the Old Testament except for the first five books. So the Samaritans were really regarded as a people who were corrupting Judaism and they were hated. As much as Jews hated Gentiles, listen, they hated the Samaritans even more. Which helps us to understand why Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan was so shocking. Good Samaritan? That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. 
General Philip Sheridan in the years of the 1870s and the 1880s when America was driving the, the Indians, the Native Americans, out of their lands was asked about the Indians and he said, the only good Indians I know are dead. Well, that's pretty much the way the Jews regarded the Samaritans. The only good Samaritans are dead. And yet we saw that Jesus reached out to the Samaritans, to the Samaritan woman at the well, and we see that Philip is also reaching out to the Samaritans too. And so we see the gospel expanding. Uh, a reminder to us that Jesus is not just the Savior of a particular kind of people. He came to save all people, all sorts and conditions of people. Well, as Philip goes out and he preaches the message in Samaria, we're told that great wonders and signs were done through him. Uh, he is permitted by the power of the Holy Spirit to do some of the same miracles that the apostles had done. Signs and wonders, we're told those were things that accompanied the apostles, but evidently they were accompanying at least this early deacon of the church as well. And it was there, as he was doing these miracles, that we're told Philip encounters the man that we see in today's text, this man, Simon. Simon Magus. And I say this is a strange story, and it's strange for a whole host of reasons. So I want to take a, a look at it, because I think the implications for us and for our lives as Christian people and for our understanding of what it means to be a member of the church is really quite significant. So we read here, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. What do we know about this man, Simon? Tradition calls him Simon Magus. Now, if you're reading out of the English Standard Version, it doesn't say Magus in here. Uh, Magus is simply the Latin word for great. So if you went and saw uh, Barnman Bailey Circus, I think they're closing that down now, but if you had ever seen that, sometimes they would have a, mission, a ma magician on there. Uh, in the 19th century, people used to love and, to go and see magicians. Um, maybe you've seen the movie The Prestige, uh, which is a movie about this sort of thing. And people were just enamored by magicians, people who would perform tricks. And you've heard of people like Blackstone the Great, for example. Well, that's what Simon was. Simon called himself the Great, Simon Magus. So you might look at him as a magician, Simon the Great. And Simon was a man who did extraordinary things, and the people were enamored by him. Now, we're told that he did miracles. Uh, we're not exactly sure whether he was actually doing miracles in the same sense that the apostles did, but whatever he did, he was amazing the people. They were enamored by him and by the amazing things that he was able to do. In fact, the people, we read in verse 10, referred to him as the power of God that is called great, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when Simon sees, and when the people see, this is interesting, when they see what Philip is doing, the miracles that Philip is doing, the healings that he is performing, all of a the sudden they realize that Simon is not even a patch on Philip's shirt. <laughs> what Philip is doing is something far more important. It's not magic. It's not trickery. It's something genuine. It's producing a genuine change in people's lives, in their physical conditions, I'm sure, but also spiritually in their lives. They were no doubt experiencing, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, they were beginning to experience joy. Not happiness, 
which is this emotion that is somehow contingent on your circumstances, but joy, transcendent joy that transcends your circumstances and your conditions. And we're told that they were going over to him. And here's why the story is interesting. The story is interesting because we're told that Simon, look at verse 13, Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the first thing we're told about him was that he believed and was baptized. But then you go on and you read the rest of the story and you wonder, did he really believe? (laughs) Because what's the next thing that he does? Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was working in and through Philip, but the people were not receiving the Holy Spirit. They were receiving the benefits of the Holy Spirit's work, but they were not receiving the Holy Spirit himself until they received the laying on of the hands through the apostles. Because we're told in verse 16, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, but when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's why I say this is a strange situation. On the one hand, we're told that he believed the message that Philip was proclaiming and was baptized. On the other hand, there's nothing in his life that indicates that a genuine transformation had taken place. And a genuine transformation is required. It is required. Uh, Keep your finger there in Acts for just a minute and flip over to Matthew. Some of you have been in the class that I'm teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus talks precisely about this change that needs to take place in the life of a person. Look at Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them how? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, here's the question I want to pose to you. Are we saved by our works? How are we saved? Well, by the blood of Jesus. But what does Paul put it in Ephesians 2? You are saved by grace. Right. By grace, through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. And we said that grace is what? God's undeserved, unearned favor. You don't earn grace. Grace is a free gift, freely offered. But that does not mean there is no place for works in the Christian life. Works don't get you saved, but Jesus is saying they are the fruit of salvation. Now, a healthy tree, and this is the image that Jesus used, doesn't have to work at producing fruit. If it's a healthy tree, it's going to produce fruit. If it's a fruit tree and it's not bearing fruit, something's wrong. Furthermore, 
you can tell by the fruit what kind of a tree it is. You don't have to be an expert in horticulture. When you see apples hanging on a tree, chances are it's an apple tree. <laughs> Same thing for lemons, Meyer lemons, or oranges, or that sort of thing. When you see the fruit, you know what the tree is. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing is true in our lives. And we know that for certain because he goes on in the very next verse to say this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's really not a matter of what we say with our lips, although that is important. He who confesses with their lips, and what? Believes in their hearts, will be saved. So we are to make a public profession. But to simply make a public profession without that change of heart that produces a difference in the way we live, true fruit, well, that's nothing but hypocrisy. And that may very well have been the case here, with Simon Magus. Now we don't know. Why don't we know? Because only God knows. Man looks on the outward appearance and here we are trying to judge what this man was. But only God knows. He is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. So what can we say about Simon? Well, we can say this. If he was born again, if he did believe, and if he was baptized as an outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual transformation that had taken place in his life, then at the very least he was guilty of what the early church called simony. And this is where the word comes from, incidentally. Simony. Simony is the practice of buying and selling ecclesiastical preference. It is buying and selling position in the life of the church. And it comes from this man's name. Simon Magus. If you've never heard that word before, Google it sometime. Look it up in the dictionary, for those of you who still use dictionaries as opposed to your phones. But you'll find that that's where this word comes from. It's buying and selling ecclesiastical preference. And it would appear that that is what Simon was trying to do. He was saying, hey, I'll give you money if you give me this ability, this power. So at the very least, if he was a believer, then perhaps he was guilty of this. And I say he may have been a believer for all the reasons that I've already said. And also because, in one respect, he hadn't done anything worse than what Peter had done. I mean, think about it. When Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, he asked them a question. They were traveling up there. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with where Caesarea Philippi is located, it's, it's very far north in Palestine. Those of you who are going with me to the Holy Land in the spring, you'll have an opportunity to go there. It was a place that few Jews went because it was so heavily populated by Gentiles. And it was a place that had really been, it had fallen on hard times, and it had been resettled by Herod and rebuilt um, to be uh, by Herod, one of the sons of Herod the Great, Philip Herod, and he had rebuilt this. 
Caesarea Philippi, uh, as a monument to Caesar and to himself, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. And it, was far, and it basically became the playpen for the rich and the wealthy. It was, a, it was a terrible sort of place. In fact, if you go there today, you can see all these niches carved into the stone walls, like Petra, and there they would have all the monuments to the various gods. And I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus took his disciples up to this sort of place, where people worshipped all kinds of God, and where the cult of emperor worship took place, where he asked the disciples the question, who do men say that I am? It's against that context, you see, that he's asking the question, who do men say that I am? Translate, am I just one of these? Am I just one of these? Just one more option among so many. And how do the disciples answer? Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. In other words, the disciples begin to answer, well, people are saying you are one option among many. And Jesus then turns to them and he gets very personal. He says, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who says what? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus turns to him and said, you are right, Simon, son of Jonah. And this has not been revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will what? Build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, that was a wonderful confession on the part of Peter. But it's not too long thereafter that what happens to Peter? He denies the Lord three times. In fact, on the night of the betrayal, at the Last Supper, Jesus, after the dinner, did what? He got down on his hands and knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, what did Peter say? He said, oh, no, 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 you cannot wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, what? You have no part with me. Do you not find it interesting that those are precisely the same words that Peter then used with Simon? May your money perish with you. You have no part in this matter or in this ministry. In the Greek, it's the same language that Jesus had used for Peter. And yet we know Peter was not cut off, was he, for eternity. In fact, Peter was restored. So it may very well have been the case that Peter was using the same language here. You'll find another incident later on in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul when he and Barnabas travel down to the Isle of Cyprus, they encounter a man who is a magician, like Simon, who opposes them. And Paul, we're told, curses the man, and he's blinded. And he gropes around blind. Now you say, wow, that's pretty extreme, Paul. But the text says he was blinded for a time. Well, isn't it interesting that that is precisely the same thing that happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? So there may be mercy here. Paul may have blinded that man temporarily because having himself been blinded temporarily, he came what? To recognize the error of his ways. And perhaps that was the way he punished this man in the way that he did. Not so much punishment as discipline. It may very well be the case that Peter was using the very language that Jesus had used on him in order to shock Simon into the realization of what he was doing. Now that is if Simon was born again. But what if he wasn't? What if this man wasn't born again? 
Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But is it enough? Here's the question. Is it enough simply to say that you believe? Is it simply enough even to go through certain rituals in the life of the church? Does that automatically guarantee that a person is an heir of the kingdom of God? Well, that's a very good question. And it's a good question for us in mainline denominations because so many of us have been raised. This is true in my own life. Raised to believe that as long as you're a good person, as long as you go to church, as long as you've been baptized, as long as you've been confirmed, your ticket is punched. And you're going to heaven. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that really what the scriptures teach? Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. You know, sometimes Jesus told parables and they were difficult to understand. Sometimes they were very simple to understand because he explained them exactly what they meant. This is an example of that. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, we read this. And he put before them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Who's the son of man? Jesus. Uh, incidentally, this was Jesus' preferred title for himself, Son of Man. We call Jesus the Son of God, and of course he was, but Jesus oftentimes referred to himself as the Son of Man. Where does that come from? It comes from the book of Daniel, that's right. It comes from the Old Testament where there is a vision. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision and basically sees what? One who is like the Son of Man. And so that was a reference to the Messiah. So Jesus is harking back to the Old Testament. He's saying... Who is the one that sows the good seed? It's me. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the one who sows the good seed. The field is the what? It's the world. And the good seed is what? The sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is what? The devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Many theologians have referred to this as the doctrine of the visible and the invisible church. Uh, When we stand and profess the creed every Sunday, 
one of the things that we say we believe in is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. How many of you say that in church on Sunday? One holy, Catholic, everybody from St. Philip's does, of course, but some of you are not from St. Philip's, you're from other places. But when we say Catholic, is this a reference to Roman Catholicism? No, what does Catholic mean? Universal. It means the church worldwide. It means all believers. There are even Baptists in that church. Even Episcopalians. And there are Roman Catholics and Methodists and Lutherans and free church people. All those people who have truly been born again. They are what? They are part of the church, the true church. Now, here's the issue. It is sometimes the case, Jesus said, that mixed in with all of those people in the invisible church. Now, we call that the invisible church because we really don't know who those people are. But then there's this other church called the visible church. That's what you see on Sunday, whether it's at St. Philip's or St. Michael's or First Baptist or First Scots, whatever it is, you've got the visible church. Those are the people that you see, but you don't know what's in their hearts, do you? And just because they are there does not necessarily mean that they are members of the invisible church. And so Jesus is saying, you can't tell the difference between the two. In fact, you won't be able to tell the difference between those two people until what? The harvest. When Christ returns in glory and there's a great separation, the great assize that takes place, and the sheep go to one side and the goats go to the other. So I want you to understand, just because people show up for church, just because they go through the rituals Jesus is teaching, that doesn't mean that they are truly members of the invisible church. Because being a member of the invisible church is not a matter of what we do outward. It's a matter of what we do inward. It's a matter of our hearts. I'm going to say this in church on Sunday as part of the sermon. I want you to understand this. You get a little bit of a preview. Christianity is not, in its heart, a code of conduct. You know, if you ask many people today, what is Christianity? Many people will tell you, well, Christianity is it's a religion. Okay, but what's at the heart of the religion? Well, it, it, Christians are, are people who, well, they worship a particular way. Christianity is a collection of religious services. Well, here's my, here's my response to that. The Christian faith certainly contains a collection of religious services. We Anglicans have a service for everything. We got a service for, for you know, morning prayer, evening prayer, noonday prayer, Holy Eucharist, and furthermore, now with the, the 79 prayer book, we've got Holy Eucharist right one, Holy Eucharist right two, we've got morning prayer right one, my morning prayer right two, we've got a service for Good Friday, we've got a liturgy for Ash Wednesday, you name it, we've got a service for everything. But is that the essence of Christianity? I would argue no, it's not. Other people would say, well, Christianity, if it's not a collection of religious services, then it's a code of moral conduct. Well, does Christianity have a code of moral conduct? Sure it does. Of course it does. It has the highest code. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Very high code. Look at the Ten Commandments. The summary of the law. But is it possible to be moral and upright and miss the heart of Christianity? I would argue it is. There are lots of moral atheists out there in the world. 
So Christianity is not a collection of religious services. It's not merely a code of conduct. And it's not merely a creed. There are many people who can stand up in church and say all the words and maybe even believe them intellectually, but it has never made a difference in their lives. The Pharisees were orthodox in their theology. But they were still lost. They were the conservatives of their day. So if Christianity contains those things, but at its heart it's not those things, what is Christianity? Christianity is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It's having a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the great examples of a man who had all of these other things and still missed the heart of Christianity was John Wesley prior to his conversion. You all know who John Wesley was, the founder of Methodism. I like to point out to Methodists, he lived and died his entire life as an Anglican. So, you Methodists, it's time to come home to mother. So, but John Wesley was a man who was raised in the rectory. His father was a priest. His mother was a well-known spiritual guide. Many people sought her out in the 18th century in a day when people did not oftentimes seek out women for spiritual advice. But he was raised in that kind of a home, very devout home. His father was a renowned biblical scholar, particularly an expert on the Old Testament. Wesley, from a very young age, knew that he wanted to be a clergyman like his father, child of the rectory. Went off to Oxford University, and while he was at Oxford, he founded an organization. It was called the Holy Club. How many of you, when you went to college and university, and you saw that list of all the organizations on campus, said, ooh, the Holy Club, that's one I want to join? <laughs> Chances are that's not the case, but that was John Wesley. He, he, he joined and he founded the Holy Club. He memorized, listen to this, the entire book of Psalms, the entire Psalter, wow. by heart. He knew them all. He was loyal to the Book of Common Prayer. While he was there at Oxford, Having founded the Holy Club, he worked with the down-and-outers of Oxford and even traveled into London and worked with the people who were on the fringe, living down there in the gutter, and he ministered to their needs. He took first-class honors at Oxford, graduate, was ordained a deacon, ordained a priest by the Bishop of Oxford, and sent off to be a missionary. And he said to the bishop, I want to go to some place where I can convert the heathen. And so the Bishop of Oxford sent him to Savannah, Georgia, <laughs> thinking that was a pretty good place to start. <laughs> Having lived in Beaufort and spent some time in Savannah, I think it was probably a pretty good place to start. Went down there to Savannah, and he was a complete and total failure. On one occasion, uh, he became emotionally attached to a young woman but he refused to commit to her. So he sort of strung her along. And she had enough of this. Her parents sent her away. When she came back, she was married to another man. And she came and she presented herself for Holy Communion at Wesley's Church. He was the founder of Christ Church in the city of Savannah. And when he realized that she was married, you know what he did? He refused to give her communion. He, he excommunicated her publicly. Well, in those days, because it was the state church, they sued him for defamation of character. He had to flee Georgia. And he came here. 
And, and, and the rector of St. Philip's thought, well, I'm not so sure about this. And eventually he traveled back to England. And it was on one of these journeys back to England that he met a group of Moravians, Moravian Christians. And he began to talk with them. And he was just dejected and he was downcast. And he couldn't understand how his life had come to naught. He was moral. He was upright. He was orthodox. He was all of those things. And the Moravians were impressed with his knowledge. He had a head knowledge that was just extraordinary. But in the course of his conversations with one of these Moravian Christians, one of them said to him, my concern is that you seem to know a lot about God, but you don't seem to know God. And that troubled Wesley. It troubled him deeply. I know about God. Do I know him personally? Not just as the Savior, but as my Savior. And the story goes that one night he was wandering through the Aldersgate section of London, dejected, downcast, at the point of despair. And he wandered into a little chapel, a Moravian chapel, and he heard the minister reading, not even from the Bible, but from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he said, as I listened to those words, I felt my heart, listen to this, strangely warmed. And I knew for the first time that I did truly believe. Well, you know the rest of the story. Wesley would go on to become one of the most powerful and influential forces for change in England in the 18th century, one of the greatest missionaries. In fact, many people have argued that the only reason, the only reason that Great Britain did not go through a bloody revolution like that experienced in France with an overthrow of the monarchy was because of the ministry of John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, you think about that. that that's amazing. His brother Charles was very similar. Charles also went off to Oxford, also graduated, member of the Holy Club, uh, ordained, and, um, but he was more musically inclined, wanted to write music for the church, but could never seem to produce a single piece. Frustrated. A week before his brother had that strange warming of the heart, he too came to have, and this is interesting, they were converted after they were clergy. Think about that. Converted after they were clergy. So there's still hope for people out there. But converted after he was a clergyman. Two weeks before his brother was converted and had that strange warming of the heart, Charles Wesley had a similar warming of the heart. Up to that point, he had never written a single piece of music. After that, he would go on to write 6,500 hymns. Among them, great hymns. Like, hark the herald angels sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise. When we think of the great hymn writers of the church, we automatically think of Wesley, don't we? During the Revolution, they used to say, give them Watts and give them Wesley, because they tore up the hymnals and used it as wadding in the muskets. <laughs> give them Watts, give them Wesley. That's what Christianity is, you see. It's not about power. It's about a person. And one wonders if Simon really understood that. Go back now to Acts and look again at what happens with Simon. 
Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Philip is having an impact, they sent to them Peter and John. So now the apostles are going up to see what's going on up there and to give their blessing to the work. And Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them. I want you to notice in verse 16 it says, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Who's the he? The Holy Spirit. Now keep that in mind. He had not yet fallen on any of them. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Luke describes the Holy Spirit as a he. Simon speaks of the Holy Spirit as an it. The Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person. Simon speaks of the Holy Spirit as a power. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is always referred to by the emphatic pronoun ekinos, he. I want you to understand the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a power. He is not something to be controlled or harnessed. We don't control the Holy Spirit. He controls us. I think the problem for Simon, and this is the problem for many people today, is that they sort of think of the Holy Spirit. God the Father we understand. God the Son we understand. But when we think of the Holy Spirit, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as though He's some sort of power. I call this Star Wars theology. You know, may the force be with you and with thy spirit. I mean, that's, that's the way we think of it, isn't it? And in those Star Wars movies, if you've seen them, you see that the power or the force is something to be controlled. It's something to be manipulated. But that wasn't the case here. The Holy Spirit is a person. I was with a Bible study yesterday that had some questions about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is the one member of the Holy Trinity whose job it is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Simon was trying to control God, and it has to be the other way around. And that's why Peter rebukes him in those strong terms. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God, that you could purchase God, that you could control God rather than God controlling you. Now what happens to Simon? We don't know. But I've got to tell you, the story does not end on an upbeat note. Look at how it ends. Now you might say, well, it does. Verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You might say, well, there's a sign of contrition. There's a sign of repentance. He realizes the error of the way, and he turns to Simon, and he says, pray for me. But here's why I say it doesn't end on a positive note. It never says that Simon was going to pray for himself. Peter could pray for Simon. But when it came to forgiveness, Simon had to pray for himself. Other people can't pray for you for your forgiveness, my friends. They can pray for you for your conversion, 
for your well-being, for your growth in, in God's grace and mercy, and for your sanctification. But when it comes to a personal relationship with Christ, when it comes to repentance, we have to pray for ourselves. I acknowledge and bewail my manifold sins and wickedness. Peter can't say, oh Lord, Simon acknowledges. <laughs> the Lord says, I mean, be honest with me. If, if I snapped at my wife because she burned the dinner, and I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. She's doing the best she could do. And I say to my daughter, go in and tell your mother, I'm sorry. What do you think her mother's going to say? <laughs> go tell your dad to come tell me himself. And therein lies the problem you see for Simon. Did he really ever understand the heart of the Christian faith? We don't know. But it's a strange story. And it teaches us, as I said, a number of important lessons. It teaches us, first of all, that Christianity's about a person. It's not religion so much as it is relationship. It teaches us that mixed in the visible church is an invisible church. And you can't tell who are the true believers and who aren't. Some of them you'll know by their fruits. But in the end, we will not know until the harvest day. I always say there'll be three great surprises when you get to heaven. You'll be surprised at who's there. You'll be surprised at who's not there. And you may be surprised that you're there. <laughs> and the third thing is this. When it comes to conversion, we have to be willing to pray for ourselves. Nobody can do that. They cannot repent of your sins for you. You need to turn to Jesus Christ and accept Him as your Savior. It's not enough to acknowledge Him as the Savior. He has to be your Savior. That has to be appropriated to your life. I, I say that it's sort of like somebody depositing $10 million into your bank account. Let me ask you a question. If somebody were to deposit $10 million into your bank account today, would that make a difference in your life? How many of you say that would make a difference in my life? It would on one condition, that you drew on the account. If you never drew on the account, it would make no difference whatsoever. 2,000 years ago, on a cross, Jesus Christ, by His shed blood, deposited the gift of eternal life into your account. But you have to draw on that by faith. You personally, nobody can do it for you. You may get into the White House riding on somebody else's coattails, but that's not how you get into the kingdom of God. The gift is deposited will you now draw on it so that it makes a difference in your life? And if you're wondering today, I'm not saying you are, but if you are wondering today, I don't know that I've ever really done that. I'm not sure. I know I'm a member of the visible church, but I'm not sure I'm a member of the invisible church. I'm not really sure that Jesus Christ is not just the Savior, He's my Savior. If you don't know that for sure, then let me encourage you to make an appointment with me or one of the clergy. And let's put that to rest. <laughs> Let's not worry about that anymore.
you can know for certainty. Well, the story ends, verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And that brings us uh, today to the story of Philip. And the last time, really, we'll encounter Philip, the deacon, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, we've got about 10 minutes left, so that doesn't give us a whole lot of time to cover Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So um, let me just pause for a moment and see if there are any questions. If there are questions, we'll deal with those. If there aren't any questions about that, then we will. We'll just jump right into it and see how far we get. Yes, Martha. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, to the Jews, if you weren't a Jew, everybody was unclean. And a Gentile was to some degree a catch-all phrase for anybody. Okay? So, for example, we know that the area known as the Decapolis in Galilee, those ten cities were Gentile cities. They were heavily Greek cities. So, sometimes they're referred to as the Greeks, sometimes as the Gentiles. But anybody that was not a Jew was unclean. The Samaritans fell in a slightly different category because, as I said, they were regarded as half-breeds. Jews would tend to look at Gentiles as ignorant. They may have been pagan, but at least they have an excuse for being pagan. The Samaritans were hated because, as they saw the Samaritans, they had no reason, no excuse. They had been given the word of the Lord, and they had turned their back on it. So I think you can, those terms are used interchangeably, you'll find, throughout the New Testament. And, and, and that's why it's hard to sometimes pin down these words. For example, when we think of the apostles, we think of those who were what? Witnesses to the resurrection. The twelve apostles, and of course Judas is replaced by Matthias, and twelve, twelve apostles what? Plus one. Who's the one? Paul. Well, what is interesting, though, is in the book of Acts, that word apostle is not only used for the twelve, it's also used for other people. Barnabas, for example, is described as an apostle. So those terms, you just have to, you, you can only define those terms really in context. Only in context. That's, that's the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Any other questions before we move on? Great. It's clear as mud. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's go ahead and at least read through this next section, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and following. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. Now I want you to hold on to that. Go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's been north, now he's going south on the road that leads out of Jerusalem toward Gaza. This is a desert place, and if you've ever been there, it definitely is. It is a desert place. But I want you to notice that it is south, and I'll tell you why that's significant in just a minute. 
And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is a, a marvelous story. If the first story was strange, this is, this is just a marvelous and an encouraging story. It's one of my favorite stories in the entire New Testament. It is also a sign of God's providence. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the New Testament. These books were written, there were no chapter divisions. So I want you to notice what happens here. Philip is having a very successful ministry, isn't he? I mean, it's so successful, they send two of the apostles up to bless it. He's being very successful. And yet, in the midst of a very successful ministry, God calls him away. That just goes to tell us that God's ways are sometimes mysterious. We would think, well, he's doing great work. Why didn't God keep him there? Instead, God calls him away from what would appear to be very successful, blessed work to another place. Sometimes God will do that, and we can't understand why. We do not understand why that is happening. We look at it because we're right down here on ground level, and we cannot understand what God is doing, and His ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are higher than the seas. But sometimes, with the advantage of hindsight, we can see what God's doing. He's up there in Samaria, north, ministering, making a difference. And all of a sudden, God says, go south. No chapter divisions. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, just for a moment. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and incidentally, that's how the early Christians were called, followers of the way. Why? Because Jesus in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So here's the situation. And this, this is for those of you who don't think God has a sense of humor. Paul, we've just learned, before we are introduced to Philip, was a what? A ravager of the church. The whole reason that Philip went north, why? 
was because of the persecution that erupted in Jerusalem as the result of the stoning of Stephen, which was precipitated by who? Paul. They came and they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. And when you get to chapter 9, he's still breathing out murderous threats. We said that he was a ravager. He didn't just start to ravage, he continued to ravage the church. So Paul is going north to Damascus, 110 miles north of Jerusalem, to arrest these Christians and bring them back for trial and execution. And he thinks, if I can just stamp this movement out in Damascus up here to the north, it will be contained. And what does God do? He takes Philip and sends him south. He leapfrogs him over Paul. So this is like a wildfire. The more Saul tries to stamp it out, the more it spreads to the south. Isn't that marvelous? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. What a message of encouragement that is for me and you. Because sometimes we look at our world and we think, my goodness, God is allowing the church to be stamped out in Western culture. It's been stamped out in the Scandinavian countries. It's being stamped out in Christian Britain. It's being stamped out here in the United States. But let me tell you something, God is spreading it to the south. Take a look at what's happening in Africa and South America and other parts of the world. You never need fear. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Evil men will do their best, but God will be successful. So Saul's going north, kicking against the goads, trying to arrest these believers, and God is taking the message and spreading it to the south. And sooner or later, you come to the point where you know as Popeye once said, if you can't beat them, join them. And we'll see in chapter 9 that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. So next week when we come back, we'll take a closer look at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and God's providence in the midst of history. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this story of Simon Magus. It is a somewhat bizarre story. In some ways, it's unnerving, but it's also illuminating. It helps us to understand what the essence of Christianity really is. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. It's about knowing Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, walking with Jesus, and allowing His presence, the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives to bring forth the fruit of good living to the honor and glory of Your name. Grant us the grace, Lord those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, to bear much fruit. And if there be any here today who are members of that visible but not that invisible church, grant that they might pray for themselves, for the forgiveness of their sins, and invite Jesus to come into their hearts and take his rightful place on the throne of their hearts as sovereign and king. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Have a great day. Thank you.